Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. White supremacy has seeped into cultures the world over. There's probably a derogatory term for black people in every language. But anti-black feelings also exist in Asian, Latino, and Arab American communities. This complicates unity among people of color. In a time when U.S. leadership openly promotes racial tensions, we'll discuss how anti-blackness resonates in communities of color. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. talking today about anti-blackness and how it resonates in communities of color. And we asked for some calls on our hotline, and we got some good ones, and we're going to play a couple right now. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, my name is Joshua Adams, born and raised from Chicago. I think the public use of the term people of color has become less about shared experience and solidarity and more about trying to lessen the negative connotations and the implicit anti-black reactions that would be fear, scorn, apathy, etc., um, to hearing about an issue that affects black people. Instead of just saying the disparate levels of mass incarceration, you know, black people go to jail for, you know, uh, marijuana. There's often a way that you can listen to a news story and every single statistic that they cite is about black people and yet they use the term person of color. Me personally, I don't disparage black people who do, you know, identify themselves as a person of color, but I don't think I could do that. It just feels, it feels weird. I mean, it, it feels like assimilation. It feels like erasure. I do think that the term person of color can be used in a, you know, a legitimate way. But from my observation, it's used as a way for people to say, this issue affects black people most directly, most disproportionately, but other non-white people are affected too. And we need to include them for other people to listen, because if we we're just talking about an issue that affects black people, then people won't listen. But I feel like it's misleading. It's also this kind of weird, like, hey, you know, in order to combat anti-blackness, we need to be privy and accommodate people's anti-blackness. Hi, I was calling the World View Hotline regarding the term people of color. I find that the more sensitive the subject, the more the term people of color is used. For example, if I'm talking with a white person and it's something very specific that's happening in the black community, they'll use the term people of color. And I think that makes them more comfortable. Um, they don't have to worry about their position as a white person. And so they'll use people of color. And I was in a conversation once with someone and I said, you know, what you're talking about affects the majority of black people. And um, I think she was a bit offended, and I went a little further and said, as a matter of fact, I am not a woman of color. I'm a black woman. Because when I go into the store, they don't say, oh, look, there's a woman of color. When they follow me or when they think that um, something um, negative about me, it's because I'm a black woman. 
We're talking about anti-blackness in non-black communities of color today on Worldview, and those are a couple calls from our hotline. We'll have more as we follow through on the program. And with me here in the studio is Dr. Suad Abdel-Kabir. She's an associate professor of American culture and Arab and Muslim American studies at the University of Michigan. She's author of Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States. Great to have you with us. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thanks. Also with me is Justin KHC. He is a visiting associate assistant professor of Asian American studies at Northwestern University. Good to see you, Justin. Good to see you. Um, I wonder if you could start us off, uh, Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir, about um, the comments we heard in the term people of color. Uh, It seems like everybody has a reason not to like this term. Uh, I mean, it is a French colonial term, but it seems to be kind of acceptable for white people these days, I guess. Uh, You know, the one caller talked all about the white comfort level of this term. Um, What are your gripes with the term people of color? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I think – I grew up with the term people of color, um, and I think the first caller made this point. It was a term of solidarity, right? The ways in which people, um, sort of people from Africa and Asia, Latin America, you know, wherever they live in the world, a way to sort of be united with each other, right? And to see the similarities between the struggles they had with white supremacy. And so that's how I was raised to use the term. But I do see today the way that the term is used, I think the callers are really insightful in terms of the ways in which it's kind of avoiding black, right? Because black is too political or black is too in your face when it comes to the issue. I've noticed on social media, people use the term, sort of the, the um, acronym, like non-black people of color, when specifically when talking about anti-blackness among non-black people of color. So I don't have a gripe with the term myself, but I do recognize that as it gets more sort of generally used, it loses some of that, um, some of that radical bite that I was raised with the term having. Justin, do you have some thoughts about the term? Yeah, it, it's an interesting uh, set of comments because um, like, uh, like Swat, my I was taught to use the term people of color as a term of solidarity. Um, in fact, I was taught uh, when I was learning Asian American studies that there would be no Asian American studies without Asian black solidarity, right? And so the the idea of uh, the the idea that uh, people of color uh, is sort of lumping everybody in under a sort of common identity um, is kind of a problematic use of the word because really the the whole point of solidarity is that we are all different, but we see something that we are struggling together against. Well, do black people have the right to be resentful of the people in the um, people of color who can move in and out of the category? It's it's like a permanent state for black people. But if you're, um, you know, if you're kind of white, you can move out of it for a while. And then when you want solidarity, you can come back in. Uh, is there, is that the uh, fair? I mean, the, it, is it okay to be kind of resentful of that? Hmm. I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, in so much as that, I think part of what uh, sort of this lumping together, what it does is that it doesn't 
help us pay attention to the ways in which we we differently experience racism, right? It doesn't mean people who are not black don't don't experience racism. They do, but they experience it in different ways, right? And sometimes they have a relative privilege, like this idea you're saying you can kind of be white or not. Of course, we've seen like in sort of Muslim communities for non-black Muslims that being white thing, you know, can easily you know, fall to the side, right, in terms of whatever is happening in the world around us, right? Um, and, and, and generally, even in the history of this country, you had people petitioning to be white, right? Um, different groups from Asia, the Middle East, petitioning to be white um, with varying levels of success, but ultimately in their lived experiences, not having all of the privileges of whiteness. And so I think, yeah, the resentment makes sense. I think the onus um, or the way we get past that resentment is for um, non-black people of color to begin to sort of recognize and reconcile with the ways in which they can reproduce anti-blackness. Justin? There's also a sense in which, um, say, Asian Americans, some people use the term model minority. And this term model minority um, is sort of a white sociological term that has been imposed onto Asian Americans to talk about the way that they've been able to rise out of poverty through education. Right, and rise, therefore rise out of their quote-unquote communities of color and join a sort of uh, white-slash-multicultural mainstream. But this term model minority sort of gives the lie to that sort of mythology because even though, they're, even though these minorities, quote-unquote, are model, they're still minorities, right? And so moving in and out of people of color um, – you can talk about the model minority as an attempt to move out of communities of color, but there's always the the sort of glass ceiling of not being able to get out of that. On the other side of the equation, there are white people who are uh, feel threatened by the term community of color and feel threatened by the solidarity of people of color. And I got a, a quote from Jacob Neusner, a professor of Judaic studies at Brown University, and he says, um, people of color are every hue but white and non-European in origin, and only people of color are authentically American. So we're now being told that that um, he feels like they're the people who are the Americans who are, you know, going to um, help you know, save liberal democracy or something. Uh, is this, uh, how, how, how does that sit with you? It's an interesting way of putting it. I, I suppose one of my reactions to that is, okay, well, what about, what about Native Americans on whom, on whose land uh, European Americans sort of occupied, not sort of, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, um, so, so if there's a sort of threatening of an quote-unquote original order, the question is whether that order is original or not. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think also, I think this idea of being threatened um, is interesting. I think uh, there's some, uh, what is it? There's a quote, like for people who are accustomed to privilege, like equality, equity feels like oppression. And so I don't know uh, that the background to that quote, but I do know that these feelings of being threatened are because there is, right, because there is a distinction. The reason why people of color exist is because we have a history. We have a history of European imperialism and colonialization that all of these people around the world actually experienced, right? Um, some of them were enslaved. Some of them were indentured service. Their land was taken over. Like, this is a very real history. So I think it's odd to be threatened 
by truth, right? And I think ultimately, if you don't want to feel threatened, I think it's then you accept the truth and you try to figure out how to sort of right the wrongs of the past. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm talking with Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir. She's from the University of Michigan and Justin C. He's a visiting uh, professor at uh, the Northwestern University here. And we're talking about um, non uh, anti-blackness and non-black communities of color. And um, how should we get rid of the term uh, people of color? I mean, should we keep it around? Is it useful anymore? Or should we just be more direct when we're talking about um, people? I mean, I don't want to get rid of the term. <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, I think the term still has a lot of value and purchase um, and, it, and it's still used. So I think some of the ways that the call is described and people have described it being used are some of the ways it's being used. And there are other ways it's being used and still in terms of the solidarity um, sort of around a sort of marginalized groups, particularly in this country. So I don't want to get rid of the term. I do think we can always um, be specific. This is something that I do in my own work, you know, sort of we use we use them we use euphemisms sort of strategically when necessary, um, but we also should be specific, right? So even if, with the model minority, like you know, and you could speak better to this, but you know, the idea that all Asian Americans are seen as model minorities is not even true, right? So there are tons. They're so different. It depends on what group, right? What country from Asia? What history you have? And then all of a sudden you're a model minority, whereas there are other people from Asia who are not having that experience, right? Well, you know, um, the historian Gary Okahiro made this really interesting point when he visited Northwestern. He said that Asian Americans have not always been the model minority. If you flip back 100 years, this the argument in Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery is that African Americans can be a model minority. And uh, Booker T. Washington's teacher, Samuel Chapman Armstrong, made the point that Native Hawaiians and also uh, indigenous peoples on the mainland could be model minorities. And so the, the, there's this... Uh, the, it, it seems to me that this term model minority is often used as a wedge to divide peoples of color. And that, mm-hmm. for that reason, I would not be in favor of getting rid of the term because the term is a term of solidarity. And, uh, and getting rid of it would sort of, would sort of give the victory to people who want to divide that sort of solidarity. You know, it seems like so many terms do go out the window, though, because of their baggage. And this one is a straight French colonial term uh, that has baggage. Um, Does that that bother you? Uh, I mean, language, um, language changes, meanings change, terms change. you know, sort of even black people weren't always called black, right? Colored? Um, is, right. Should colored I, well, bother I, us? It's I, almost the same. Right. right. I, well, no, I don't think it's the same. So I, I don't think colored should make a comeback. So <laughs> I'm definitely not advocating <laughs> that at all. Um, but I don't think it's the same because I do think we also have to give people the agency to name themselves, right? And so if people who are from Asia and Africa, Latin America, who live in this country, sort of sort of, sort of all the range of that indigenous folks, like if they want to name themselves and use that term as a way to bond together with other people because they share, they do have some shared experiences, then we should hold on to that. If they decide they don't want to use that term to refer to themselves, then we let go of it. But I don't think we, I think we have to, I think we have to give people agency when it comes to sort of terms and what we call ourselves. Justin? Yeah, so that's making a really interesting point here. Um, as a term of solidarity, it has been used uh, to sort of unite peoples of color. 
However, if in the current solidarity, if in the way that, as the Brazilian educator Paulo Freire put it, the people's what arises out of the people's own sense of consciousness, their own sense of themselves, their own conscientization, is that this term is not useful anymore, mm-hmm. then they can get rid of it. Who are we as scholars to tell them what they can and cannot use? I'm talking with Justin C., and uh, he's from Northwestern, and Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir, and she's from the University of Michigan, and we're talking about uh, the term people of color right now, and we're going to talk more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Today we're looking at how people use the term people of color, and we opened our phone lines to hear about you from how that term fails to promote diversity or not. And here are some of the callers on their experiences of racism amongst people of color in the workplace. My name is Salomon. I live here in western suburb. The things which I experience in workplace uh, discrimination against me from colored people. It is a lot when I remember this. The first place I started working in the United States, in a, I had a boss from Vietnam, and uh, she used to try to deny me a job as much as she could. I left that job, and I went to another place. I faced more than that. One time I was assigned to Weld, a new product, and uh, my boss took my assignment, my, my job, and she gave for someone who speaks the same language with her. She speaks Hispanic, but she came from Puerto Rico. The last one is which I got uh, laid off from there. He considered himself his uh, Vietnam, and uh, culturally he's Vietnamese. And uh, the day I left that job, I told for the human resource, that guy, he treats me like a dog. He discriminates me with his peers or with his friends. He tried to give the job for them, but he denied for me. I worked there more than nine years in workplace. I'm proudly dark black African. I'm from Africa, and I'm proud of to be from Africa. I'm a woman of color. I'm brown. I'm Asian from India. I used to work uh, in Chicago at Chicago Housing Authority back in the 80s. And my manager and the people there, a majority of them were African-American, used to tell me that I do not belong there. I need to go back home. And uh, they used to swear at me, use slurs, at the extent that I used to have panic attacks at night. But I needed my job. I worked. But that's what made me stronger and a better person, and appreciate uh, what racism is like. 
Those are some calls on our hotline talking about uh, anti-blackness in the non-black communities of color, and um, both had to do with the workplace there. And uh, the first man uh, was really had suffered years of discrimination from people, um, and a lot of times. Um, there's Vietnamese, uh, Asian people who seem to, you know, be anti-black. Can you talk some, Justin, about anti-blackness in the Asian community? I can, a little bit. Um, when I began um, doing my Ph.D. research in San Francisco, uh, there, were, uh, there were two or three Chinese-American elderly people who were allegedly pushed onto train tracks and attacked by black youths. Um, this caused a media circus uh, in San Francisco. And so when I did the, the interviews for my project, uh, a number of Chinese Americans uh, had a number of uh, bad things to say about black people. So when I listened to uh, these interview trans or when I listened to these people talk about uh, their anti-blackness, what I wanted to do was I wanted to follow how they were thinking about black people. And one of the things that they would keep on coming back to was this idea that they wanted to be safe and that they were constantly under attack by these mysterious forces that they named black. And so what, it sort, of, what sort of occurred to me after a while was that they had sort of internalized this understanding of the model minority, that they were sort of models of order and success and uh, other people of color, especially black people, were not part of that order. And so we're, we're sort of sowing seeds of disorder in their own imaginaries. And sometimes this would sort of crop up in their own lived experience. And so uh, this is one of the reasons why, um, why I think the model minority is a sort of wedge of division among peoples of color. Because once that gets internalized, this destroys any possibility of solidarity. It seems like there's been some pretty high-profile cases of Asian Americans who have shot and killed black people. And there was um, a case of the murder of a Kai Gurley recently. Yeah. And this was by a Asian American, a Chinese American police officer. And he... Um, the Chinese American community came out and, you know, seemed to be petitioning for him to be let off like a white person would be let off for shooting this black person. Right. Um, that, what do you make of that? There, there was even a statement uh, from one of the protest participants uh, at that New York protest who said that, um, who said that uh, Peter Liang, the uh, police officer, had become the Chinese scapegoat for the entire uh, for the for the crimes of the police force against black people, um, that was a very strange moment because there were also other Asian Americans who were advocating for justice for Akai Gurley, and so again we see sort of this model minority mythology, sort of dividing even Chinese Americans, right? Some of some of whom think, okay, it's really us against them. We're the models, and they're not, and so. Uh, to protect our people, we have to be against those people. And then there's others who say, well, no, we are all in this same struggle together. We'll, we'll advocate for justice for Akai Gurley because if somebody can be shot like that, uh, then we're all in danger of, of, of danger in this sort of order. And uh, 
that sort of caused a rift within even Chinese America. So, um, yeah, in terms of uh, in terms of what I think about that, um, I think the model minority is a mythology that needs to be reckoned with. I'm talking with Justin C. from Northwestern and Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir, and we're talking about uh, what happens in, with anti-blackness in non-black minority communities. And I wanted to also bring up um, Korean hairdressers <laughs> and store owners. There's this all, long history of animosity, and in, in African-American neighborhoods, they are there, and they are... Um, Working and they seem to have some hostility towards the people they are economically codependent on, and it, it's almost like a um, um, you know some kind of caricature that it's been going on for so long, uh, it, but it's still there. You know, I think one of the archetypal moments for this was what happened in 1992 in Koreatown in Los Angeles, uh, when when uh, after the acquittal of the police officers who beat up Rodney King, uh, a number of African-American people went through Koreatown and sort of trashed it, and Korean-Americans took up their guns and sort of tried to defend themselves uh, before the National Guard arrived. And this was a point of real uh, tension uh, in terms of uh, black and Asian relations. Well, that was also caused by a Korean woman in Koreatown shooting an African-American girl uh, in her store, alleged, uh, accusing her of stealing something. Now, I think here again, this sort of us versus them um, mentality is sort of born out of this idea, again, of what I've been talking about, the model minority, that, that Asian Americans have not only been uh, told that they are a model minority, but that we've sort of come to internalize this. And in internalizing it, what we do is we position ourselves against people who are not like us. And if those people are black people, uh, then, that, then, then that becomes a sort of flashpoint for these uh, both micro-scale and macro-scale uh, sorts of violent actions. Uh, I think a lot of white people look at the model minority thing and Asians as um, as just – it's an outgrowth of their super industriousness and that this is an um, inherent quality to Asians. Um, and that, um, uh, you know, is, is pretty strange. There's uh, suicide rates in the Asian American community now that are really high because of this um, – I don't know if it's inflicted model minority pressure or or an internalized model minority pressure. There's a there's a piece uh, written in the 1990s by somebody who was pseudonymized as Lisa Park. This uh, piece was called "Letter to My Sister" and it was about uh, this woman's sister, a Korean American who had committed suicide. And in that piece, she says the model minority is not doing well. Right? If we've internalized this model minority. Uh, mentality, what it's done is it becomes a sort of superego that oppresses us from within. So that sort of internal oppression is, is both psychologically harmful to Asian Americans and causes these sorts of societal disorders. Um, 
if there's a term that I'd like to get rid of, it's not peoples of color then. <laughs> it's model minority. <laughs> that is becoming eminently clear, Justin. Suad Amto Kabir, what do you think about all that? Are you just hear that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing I want to say is, you know, anti-blackness, you know, is a global problem, right? It hasn't always been that way, <laughs> um, but it is now. And a lot of that has to do with European colonialism and imperialism. So even people come to this country, they're coming to this country with ideas of anti-blackness already. Like if we think about um, sort of in terms of the Arabic speaking world, for example, right? Um, and there are terms, there are a number of terms to refer to black people. To be called black is sort of an insult. And there are a number of terms, like abd was one term, for example, that means slave. And it's a term people use derogatorily to, to refer to black people, whether those black people are Arabs themselves or they might be African migrants from other countries, right? Um, because of a history in which, you know, sort of in the Arab world, you know, there was always slavery, but slavery wasn't race-based, right? But with the rise of European colonialism, the transatlantic slave trade, then you have this kind of race-based notion of slavery. And so that anyone who's black then becomes a slave. So people sort of have those ideas, you know, in their home countries, the same thing you see in South Asia, right? And then they bring those here and then they encounter anti-blackness as it looks like here, right? And those things kind of merge, reproduce itself and become this kind of like crazy <laughs> sort of animal that we're all sort of fighting against. And I think, and I think so we have this, that happening. I think we have, you talked about this sort of internalized racism, right? So people sort of, they they recognize their position, their non-white position and the ways in which they don't have benefits because of that. And so the the little bit of benefit you do get, right? So the white majority gives you, you want to hold on to that, but then you internalize these ideas that are actually dehumanizing you alongside other black people. I mean, alongside black people. So I think you know, I grew up in New York, right? And so this idea of like Koreans in terms of like the hair salons, but also the fruit stands, you know, um, but also Arabs, Yemeni grocers, right? Yep. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm Muslim, so I grew up Muslim in New York City. And, you know, you know, in my neighborhood, the bodega was not run by sort of a Puerto Rican, it was run by Yemenis. And we were little, like Muslim school kids. We would come in there, we would say, you guys aren't supposed to be selling alcohol. And you're not supposed to be selling pork because we were like, we're Muslim, right? And you can't do those things. But we also knew that these things and the kind of foods and things that they were offering in their stores were actually harmful to our communities, right? And if they're Muslim, like we're Muslim, then we're like, well, you can't do that because a Muslim is supposed to bring benefit wherever they go, right? And so we sort of had this, even as little kids, and we were kind of like, you know, we still buy, you know, candy from the store, but we would make these, you know, kind of really poignant arguments to them, you know? And so this is a long-standing problem that's true in New York City, it's true in the California Bay Area, it's true here in Chicago, right? In terms of these kind of, in Chicago, the, the bodegas are called food and liquors, right? right. Um, and there's been work around that, like this one organization on the South Side, the Inner City Muslim Action Network, Iman, they've been doing work around getting Arab grocers to to improve, right, the quality of the things that they sell, um, which is good work and long work. And so I think, you know, anti-blackness is global. It has its manifestations elsewhere. Then it comes here, and then we have to deal with it. Uh, it, it what should community? It seems like that is so hard to change in a, in a community. It's well, I mean, I think it's like, you know, it's one of these things where um, it can be hard, but doesn't have to be, I suppose. Um, I think part of it has to do with raising consciousness, you know. Um, I think for people to see how they are related to each other um, and the ways in which they're related to each other and how they're being 
the, the benefits or the privileges they don't have and also the ones that they do, right? And to see that's connected. I mean, I think for me in general, that's true for the country, the U.S. as a whole, right? We need people to see how sort of the disadvantages they face are connected to a larger system, right? And so therefore our goal should not be to sort of you know, be crabs in a barrel and hold on to the little piece we got, mm. but rather to try to figure out how to really kind of dismantle the structure, right, that is creating um, disadvantage in so many different ways, for some more than others, but nevertheless in so many different ways. So, yeah. We're going to take a break and uh, be right back. And we're talking with uh, Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir. She's from the University of Michigan and Justin C. from Northwestern University. And we'll take a few phone calls after the break. The number to call is 312-923-9239, 312-923-9239. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Today on the program, we're talking about anti-blackness in non-black communities of color. And we opened our phone lines at 312-923-9239. And we did have some calls on the hotline. And here's some calls about people's experiences as being perceived as a non-white racial group. I am of half of Filipino American descent. My mother is from the Philippines, and I have a lot of stories. I love my homeland, but the Philippines have always struggled with their colorism everywhere. The first time I started noticing colorism was when my mom would always introduce me. I think starting with a little girl as Mestiza, people would just be like fawning over me. And I, I never understood why, really. But I figured it out maybe, I think, when I was in my early 20s. Uh, it just meant, like, I'm lighter-skinned, and therefore I have just certain privileges, and I'm better than other people, according to them, which I don't like. I would prefer to be seen as brown. When it comes to the anti-blackness, the original Filipinos are black Asians. And so when Spain colonized the Philippines, they call them the N-word, and so I still see that from my mom, and I see that from other people in my family. And when they use that word, it's, it's connotation for a bad person. I fought really hard uh, starting in my teens to fight back against that. I've lost that battle. The last time I went to the Philippines, though, aside from all the advertisements for whitening lotion everywhere with all the brown people running around, my Filipino grandma called herself ugly because she was not only dark-skinned but looked like a black person. The Spanish word actually for the N-word. The legacy that the Americans and the Spanish, when they colonized our people, it's still lingering and it needs to be, it needs to end. And I think if we do that, maybe there'll be some good and maybe even we'll be one step closer to ending, ending anti-blackness. I have an interesting anecdote that points to some of the cracks in the terminology around people of color. This past year, the Dyke March, which is a kind of long-standing lesbian social movement and parade and sort of party within Chicago, historically it has been like a really white social movement here in Chicago. 
they've been trying to fix for that by having women of color, lesbians of color, trans people of color, and leadership. I'm a mixed black woman, and I went with my best friend who's white and also queer. We show up, and it turns out they didn't have a lot of discretion with how they promoted this party, and many thousands were RSVP'd to the Facebook event in the first place. And it turns out it was at an undocumented person's house, and they didn't want that person to be vulnerable, which is understandable, but it did get really packed really fast that night. Police were already crawling around the area. So I got in. I had to wait at the door for a little bit. But very soon after, a white person came up to me and my friend and said, hey, we were asking if white people would lead the party to make space for people of color. So this is me, black woman, my friend, white person who just showed up. And I said, oh, yeah, I get that. But, you know, she's my ride um, and I'm not white. Um, mind you, on the Facebook event, they'd made it really clear. This is a space where we're trying to center queer trans people of color and black people. So I felt awkward, like, okay, I'm black, I'm supposed to be centered here, but you're asking me to leave because I'm here with my white friend. So later in the night, again, someone comes up to me, like not an hour later, saying, hey, I don't know if you got the memo, we asked white people to leave, looking dead on at me. And I said, um, are you calling me white? She said, well, I don't know, I just thought I'd ask. And I was like, that's ridiculous, you're claiming you want to center black people. Um, and I feel so, quote unquote, centered that I actually want to leave the party because you're coming up to me trying to categorize me in this aggressive, violent, racial way. It's uncomfortable the ways that Latinx people can be anti-Black even within their own communities and against Black people. I don't know if that was at play, but I certainly felt uncomfortable that she's coming up to me and reading me in a certain way. And also, white experience, not uniformly opposite to the experience of the vague, nebulous term, people of color. Those are a couple calls from our hotline talking about anti-blackness in non-black communities of color. We're here with uh, Justin C. and Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir. And um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on those two very interesting calls? I mean, the first one, the poor uh, woman whose family's from the Philippines and she has given up on, on trying to uh, you know, straighten them out a little bit on some of their terminology. And then the second one, um, a well-intentioned uh, event turns into uh, kind of a uh, kind of a hopelessly mean thing that is completely uh, antithetical to what it was supposed to be about. Uh, uh, Justin, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, the the one word that sort of swirls in my mind is Paulo Freire's word conscientization. Uh, Paulo Freire says that oftentimes people, when they want liberation, they use slogans um, to try to convince more people to sort of buy, on, buy into their side. They're not invested in the slow work of listening to people and having people use their words about the world. And so uh, one of the things that I was thinking about uh, as I was listening to those two calls was, you know, this is – both of these phenomena are terrible. But I wonder what's going on uh, – in these people's heads as they're saying, you know, uh, white people have to leave the party or, uh, or I'm ugly because I have darker skin. Like what if we were to probe that more? But probing that more, of course, would, would need extended conversation dialogue. As one student of mine says, this takes a long time. <laughs> They've internalized some stuff. <laughs> and it needs to come out. 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was when the um, second caller talked about what she called anti-blackness in Latinx communities, right? And I wasn't, it wasn't unclear of the person who asked her if she was black or not, was Latinx or not. I don't, I don't recall, but I think it's interesting um, that if they were, that they would call her out in terms of what they think, not only what they think black is, but also what they think Latinx is, right? Um, I think, you know, for myself, for example, you know, I am, I am a black woman who's Latina as well. And one of the things that you find anti-blacks is you find a lot of anti-blackness in Latinx communities, both here and in Latin America and the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. Um, and there's this devaluation of blackness precisely because of a valuation of whiteness, right? And this this idea of improving the race, the long a long-standing idea, or even ideas of like mestizaje and this idea of being mixed race, right? But being not black, right? So you're not white, but you're still not black. And the further and further away from blackness you can get. Um, the more sort of the better you are, the better you are, better the community is. And so you, you, you see that, I think. So you see ways in which sort of black people, there was this television show, um, Love and Hip Hop, um, the Miami. They, they, they did a, 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 um, a season in Miami. And there was this woman named Amara La Negra, who is a black, um, I think she's Dominican um, woman, performer, singer, this kind of thing. And she had these experiences in the show where right? people were like, you know, both in the show, one person sort of says to her, like, well, why are you all this black stuff and what's all that about? And, you know, um, and then outside the show, you had black people in this country because they, too, don't recognize Afro-Latinidad, that, that we exist, right? Even though the majority of people who were enslaved in this hemisphere, right, ended up in Latin America and the Spanish and Caribbean. Only 5% ended up in the United States. But oftentimes in the U.S., people think, this is the black experience. And so they're like, well, she's not really black or she's in blackface because they couldn't, they, they could not conceptualize that you could have someone like her who exists. And so you, so on both ends, this thing kinds of happens, you know, I think, but the thing about blackness and, and anti-blackness, which I think is also important to recognize is that two things happen simultaneously. So on one hand, there's this devaluation of blackness. We don't want to be black. We don't like it. But then there's an appropriation too. So even in Latin America, all the things we love about being Latino, like the music and the food, like all this stuff comes from Africa, right? You know what I mean? And the same thing is true with other communities of color. People love hip hop. They love R&B. You know, they love style. They love dress. They love all these things black people do. But, you know, it's like the, um, the actress um, said, um, what would we be like if we loved black people as much as we love black culture? Right. And so I think this is a long this is a longstanding reality um, that we also confront when it comes to anti-blackness. We're going to take a call here. His name is Anel. Anel, you're on. Her name is Anel, and the number is 312-923-9239. You're on WBEZ. Hi, Jerome. How are you? Hi, guests. How's everybody? I just wanted to say, um, you know, education in the foremost should be something that we grapple with, you know, um, as someone who grew up in the United States, but I also have the the opportunity of travel, uh, a lot of people don't know their own history. And I think what I was saying to the producer was that I think that if black people knew their own history, their own history, then maybe the outcome of all this anti-blackness would be different if the education part was there and we would be open to other cultures and not have it so segmented and also have it so one-sided of learning about somebody else's history and or culture. Uh, another thing that I wanted to say, which I forget, 
that's all the producer, but what I wanted to say is about the use of the usage of the word white supremacy. Um, I'm just going to speak to my own self. I don't think that white people have done anything that is really too supreme. I think we need to categorize (laughs) the word correctly and not use the word supreme. Um, There are other ways that we can acknowledge their existence. What do you like? Let it rip. (laughs) I, I would just say, you know, you know, if they want to say white power, that's great. But to be supreme, you know, you have to set examples of that. And I have yet to see anything of supremacy in that value. And, and I have yet to see it. So, but education, first and foremost, we, you know, if that means we have to turn the education system upside down, I'm for that. You know, but for my kids not to know about W. E. Bois, Frederick Douglass, for them not to know about Harriet Tubman, and it's just segmented, and you know you were you were slaves, and all of a sudden now you're free, and you're here, and Jim Crow, and that happened, and now bam, you're here. No, I mean we have to really grapple with that, and people need to really be truthful in their conversation, and not be politically correct, but just really be truthful. Anel, thanks for calling and being truthful with us. Um, do you guys yeah. have some response? I mean, I agree. I agree with her in terms of the education piece. You know, I think, I think you know, public education in this country is woefully inadequate when it comes to sort of sharing histories of anyone who's really non-white, non-wealthy. You know, sort of in general. I think you know. I mean, I've taught. I teach college. And so I get people after they finish, you know, K through 12. And the things that they don't know astonish me, right? Um, And so we do definitely need to um, sort of improve upon that and sort of as a broad broad sense, and particularly for communities who, you know, who, you know, their history is not the one that we get all the time, right? We really need to make those differences. I did also comment on the white supremacy piece, if I could. I mean, I think that, you know, the idea of the term is not to say that white people did anything supreme, right? But rather that term is meant to identify sort of the forms of domination um, that the world has experienced that has been driven by an ideology which says, right, that white people are superior. So it's not meant to kind of say that white people are superior, but actually to sort of identify the forms of political, economic, social, cultural, ideological domination that the world has experienced as the, at the hands of people that we call white. Justin? I, I like the education piece, too. As I was listening to the call, one of the things that I thought of was you know, if Chinese people knew their own history, and if Asian Americans who use the term Asian American knew their own history, we would go a long way in terms of overcoming anti-blackness as well. I was reading a uh, a review in preparation for this show of um, of Black Panther and its reception in China, and the reviewer said that you know, as we know, as we all know. Uh, China has been a backward country since the 1960s and 1970s because of the Cultural Revolution. And so they're not, and so Chinese people are not exposed. He says, he says, not me, uh, to uh, black people. And I sat there stunned, thinking, what is he talking about? During the Cultural Revolution, Mao coined the term "third world," right, to to signify peoples of color across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And he did this in a meeting with African leaders, right. And he says that the third world has the most amount of people in the world. The third world should unite. And in this way, uh, we could uh, – peoples of color can throw off the domination of, uh, of white supremacist nation states and, and forms of neocolonialism. And so I thought, wow, you know, 
even these analyses of anti-blackness in Asian America and also in China are ahistorical because people don't know their history. Right. And I think knowing the history is important, too, not just so that we kind of know each other better, but to avoid some of the things we've talked about earlier in terms of the violence people experience, right? The ways in which anti-blackness can result in discrimination or, or death, right? Or death. And so I think that's also a key key sort of motivation. And right. also to understand their own internalized uh, psychological states mm-hmm. that from which that violence manifests. Exactly. You know, I, the, the call about the Dyke March just kind of got me, uh, it was like, wow, this is hopeless. Here are well-intentioned people trying to do something and they, they, well, they, they, they kind of mess it all up. Yeah, I mean, I just was, mm, I mean, part, part of the issue sometimes with these well-intentions is that um, you know, a lot has to happen before for the intentions to actually make their mark. So I don't know a lot about the Dyke March and I can't speak to what they were doing, but I, but I work in like a university setting, right? So diversity, right, is this thing people talk about all the time. We wanna diversify, right? So we wanna bring in more students of color. We wanna bring in more faculty of color, but they don't last. They don't graduate, they don't get tenure. Why? We brought them in, right? But you didn't really bring them in, right? You didn't set, you didn't create it so that they had the best possible way to be successful in these places. And so likewise, I just think that sometimes people think, okay, well, we're going to center people of color. We're going to center black people. Um, but you've made the decision to do that and you're trying to bring them in. But are they in the planning? Are they Because there are ways to like, even having something at an undocumented person's house in the first place. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, Because if you're going to have a party and it's a march, you already know. <laughs> we already know what's going on yep. here. So like, from jump, something was wrong with how this came out. And so I don't think that the person felt excluded just because, you know, I think what happened was it wasn't really a part of what they were try- trying to do. Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir is an associate professor of American culture and Arab American Arab and Muslim American studies at the University of Michigan. She's author of Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States. And I would also like to recommend her website, uh, Sapello Square, which is really interesting and has thought-provoking articles. There's one on Malcolm X there right there on the cover now. Yes, thank you. And uh, Justin C. is a visiting assistant professor of Asian American studies at Northwestern University. He writes on ideologies and theologies of Asia and Asian American life. Great to talk with you again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about what's happening in Gaza. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.